Impress your friends, amaze your coworkers, make your family proud. Here's what you need to know. I'm going to tell you what you need to know. I'm going to tell you what Finishing you need to know. Finishing strong here in the fourth quarter. Petro. Back at the uh, station time now for our need to know. It's brought to you by our friends at Art and Frame Warehouse. FrameKC.com. See you in person uh, there at 92nd and Metcalf. The best in the business when it comes to framing your sports memorabilia. Custom designing. That's what you get right there. They buy in bulk like the big warehouse uh, stores, too. That's why they can charge warehouse prices while still giving you custom designing. Uh, mention A10. Save even more. Uh, go to FrameKC.com. That's FrameKC.com. Trust uh, Art and Frame Warehouse, the only people I trust with my sports memorabilia, online at FrameKC.com. Let's begin with a, uh, a little Tyler Gentry. Jack, uh, you had a chance to talk to him, uh, a guy that's trying to break through on this team, and a lot of people still like him, his ability and like his chances. Yeah, I think that Tyler Gentry is one of those guys that is – going to have a chance in spring training to maybe win a spot out here but if not uh, I think he's one of those first guys that can you know, come through to Kansas City from Omaha early on maybe April or May but I had the chance to sit down and talk with him and ask him a little bit about what he's been working on the offseason to prepare for these next few weeks. Uh, a lot of machine work this offseason probably the most I've ever done just every day I'm either hitting velocity off the machine or hitting a nasty breaking ball from either side lefty or righty and that's what I did pretty much every day this offseason so it's uh feels a little bit better the, the first couple ABs I had, live ABs I had yesterday, and so I think a lot of that is from the machine work. Now, last year, the power really started to come around for you at all levels. You know, what what can you point to that kind of led to that? Was it more of just bat speed? Was you working on that type of power, tapping into a little bit more? It was uh, mostly just me figuring out my swing. Uh, it took me until probably halfway through last year to get my swing to how I wanted it to, and uh, when my swing's going good, I'm hitting with power to all fields, and so that's kind of one and uh, when I started to hit for powers, when I got the swing figured out and felt comfortable driving its all fields. When you're on the cusp of the big leagues like this, you know, you're right there knocking on the door. Uh, what is that like? You know, to move through all the levels, you know, college ball, high school, everything, and to be right at this point, what is that experience like? Uh, I mean, you try not to think about too much. It's still just baseball, and you, you know, it's exciting when you're in big league camp and you're around a bunch of guys that have been in the big leagues for years and they know what it takes. And so you just try to learn from them and see what they do, and you know, try your best to, to compete with them and try to beat them and so that's uh, really my mentality is try to get better every day and just try to learn from the guys. Now we know you can play all three outfield positions here. Which one feels more at home to you the most comfortable? Uh, I, get, I played right field the most growing up and uh, but thankfully last year I got a lot of reps in uh, left field toward the end of the year and so I got a lot more comfortable with that so I'd, I'd probably say right field is where I'm most comfortable but I've gotten a, a lot more comfortable in left. And if there's one more thing you want to work on in this camp or maybe just throughout this season what would it be? Uh, just get my swing back to how, how I like it and driving it to the opposite field because that's usually when I know that things are going good and the rest will take care of itself is when I'm letting the ball get deep and driving it to right center. He's not a very big guy. Not a big guy, but he's got a lot of power in that bat. That's someone that was on display last year, not only with AAA Omaha and Northwest Arkansas. Wouldn't be surprised for him to have a really good camp down here in Surprise. Yeah, Royals have had a, a nice history. These guys like Salvador Perez that never cracked that top 100 that go on to be very good players for them. Uh, Kelvin Herrera and uh, Gentry's a guy that I know a lot of people like. So if he would come through, that would be big for the Royals. Jack, thank you very much. Jack Johnson with me here in Surprise covering your Kansas City Royals. Let's talk Rick Patino. Not happy. I uh, took the St. John's job. It was all smiles. I'm in New York. It's all great. Uh, he wasn't happy yesterday. We just lack toughness. We just don't move our feet on defense. Look, they, they shot 37 free throws. 
throw out the stats. You see it every game, the amount of free throws they shoot and the amount of free throws we shoot. Look at what Naheem shot on the year. Look at what uh, Chris Ledlam shot on the year. I mean, you're a power forward. You play 29 minutes without a free throw. Uh, that means you're not offensive rebounding, not getting to the line. So it's it's really the, all the toughness things of why we give up leads. We are so non-athletic that we can't guard anybody without fouling. And really, it's not about losing. Because even in winning, winning when we watch the film, I see unathletic plays. I, I see people that don't handle the ball, that's just interested in taking quick shots. So it's been a disappointing year. If you had to do it over again, would you have attacked your first offseason differently? I had no choice. We just could take who we could get, who was available. We had no choice. Um, I don't think we were going to win the first year anyway, because when you rush like that and you don't see the players and you just uh, – not not a whole lot we can do, but it's um, – I think I've enjoyed even, – even the Celtics when we lost – I've enjoyed every minute being a Boston Celtic coach. Didn't like the fact that we lost in that following year, but this has been the most unenjoyable experience I've had since I've been coaching. Do you have any second thoughts of taking this job? No, not at all. It's not St. John's. It's my team. Look, I'm disappointed. I don't want to say the wrong things, but I'm really disappointed in my team. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say the wrong things. Listen. Uh, my team is slow. It's unathletic. Uh, they're kind of gutless because they won't get to the line. Um, love St. John's, but th- th- these guys are just trash. And uh, we took what we could get. They were literally all that was left. Uh, it's all we could touch. I mean, it's 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 just awful. But I don't want to say the wrong thing. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Oh, my. Let's talk more about that with Gary Parrish. He's our college basketball insider. Best in the business from CBS Sports. Uh, we talk college hoops next with uh, Gary. We're live in Surprise. The program with Soren Petro. Yeah, Mo, that team sure did suck last night. They just plain sucked. I've seen teams suck before, but they were the suckiest bunch of sucks that ever sucked. Weekdays from 2 to 6 on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Welcome back. You're in the program here on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Let's talk to our college basketball insider, the best in the business. He is Gary Parrish from CBS Sports, the Eye on College Basketball podcast. A must listen if you're a college basketball fan. Uh, Gary Parrish is brought to you by our friends at the University of Kansas Health System. Uh, you know, if you uh, suffer an orthopedic injury in everyday life or are playing sports, the University of Kansas Health System offers orthopedic walk-in care at 435 and all in Overland Park. Weekdays 8 to 7, Saturdays it's 8 to 2. Learn more at kansashealthsystem.com slash orthopedics. Uh, Gary, how are you, my friend? I am wonderful. How are you? I, I'm great. I'm here in sunny Arizona, uh, enjoying some warmth and royal spring training and watching Rick Patino melt down. Can you explain to me? What the thought process was there from Rick Bettino when it comes to uh, his comments about his team yesterday? I think he's just not used to losing like this. And when you go through something you're not accustomed to going through, um, it, it, it's always interesting to see how you'll react to it. I'm not saying Rick's never struggled as a coach before. Obviously he has, but um, not often. And it's sort of similar to you hear Mick Cronin earlier in the season, you know, saying a lot of the same things. He didn't get as specific about his roster as Rick did over the weekend, but there's an example of two 
um, you know, straight-talking basketball coaches who have achieved incredible amounts of success consistently who are both going through unusually tough years. And at least in their press conferences, I think you can reasonably say they haven't always uh, handled it perfectly. Like Rick's comments were, were really direct, and you don't see that from coaches too often going specifically uh, you know, at players about a lack of athleticism or just talent in general. That, that's not something you hear coaches say too often, but, but Rick said it on Sunday and then doubled down again yesterday. Tell me what what do you you know six and nine in the league fourteen and twelve overall he said well we're what did he say slow and unathletic and you know I put a team together late like what what is he you know what what did he do what would he do differently like I I guess I'm trying to understand it it in some ways seemed like a tantrum um, you know and and maybe that's it. it's just frustration boiling over maybe tantrums unfair frustration boiling over uh maybe would be a better way to put it or was there another path that that he could have taken like what is he getting at like I wouldn't put a team together this fast so what are you, what are you going to forfeit the season and just practice like what 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 was the alternative he could have done well you're on to something interesting here because uh, you know Penny Hardaway right now is saying similar things at Memphis you know Memphis was ranked in the top ten roughly a month ago, and now the Tigers have lost six of their past nine and look like a team you know, that's going to miss the NCAA tournament. Like every other team that was ranked in the top ten a month ago is still at least in the top 20, and Memphis is now way on the wrong side of the bubble. And Penny, I mean, he didn't get as specific about players, but he has said, you know, I had to build this entire team in one offseason, and we added guys late, and, you know, I, I, I just don't want to have to do it like this again. The problem with using that, as an excuse, whether you're at St. John's or Memphis or anywhere else, if your excuse for or explanation even for why your team isn't as good as people thought it was going to be is because we had to build it in one offseason, well, I'm sorry, but that is the way college basketball teams are largely going to have to be built um, at a lot of places going forward. And there are examples of uh, coaches who built teams in one offseason very quickly and it actually turned out really well. Kansas State and Jerome Tang is a great example of that last season. This season, not so much. But I guess I'm a little bit with you when I hear coaches talking about, well, what do you expect when you have to build a, a team through the transfer portal? Because this is the way you're going to be building teams going forward. Like Rick Patino's next St. John's team is largely going to be built through the transfer portal. Penny Hardaway's next Memphis team is largely going to be built through the transfer portal. And if they're sitting here next February saying the same things they're saying this February, it'll be just as confusing then as it is now. And, and what is it, like? where would you put your money on that they will bounce back? I mean, there's, there's quite a track record. You mentioned Cronin as well. Because it seems like Missouri went the other route. And that's not working, right? They went with, okay, let's get a bunch of recruits in and let's go that approach. And it, and it didn't work. I mean, is this just, hey, the transfer portal, the reality is it's going to be a very combustible thing and continuity is going to be extraordinarily hard. Is that the, the lesson of this story that we're watching across college basketball? Yeah, I think what you're going to find out is that there's no perfect way to do it. You can look at UConn and look at Purdue and look at Houston. Those are the three best teams in the country, it appears, according to everybody. And they're, they're all built in different ways. They, they all have guys who enrolled with them out of high school. They all have guys who, you know, came to them via the transfer portal. Um, what you're going to be able to find going forward is that it's going to be hard to not – it's going to be hard to be good without using the transfer portal. And every year you're going to find teams that are good – 
filled with transfers and teams that are bad filled with transfers. But you're going to have to fill up with transfers. That's just college basketball in, in this era. What I hear most from coaches is that the biggest issue trying to build a basketball team this way is you don't know the people you're getting. Like in a different era, the Kansases, the Missouris, the, the, you know, the St. John's, the everybody at the high major level, you were largely reliant on high school prospects. You would start recruiting them when you, they were sophomores in high school, maybe juniors year at the latest. You would go to their hometowns and you'd go back to their hometowns and you'd bring them on visits and then you'd bring them on unofficial visits and you'd have dinners with them and you'd text their parents and all of this would happen over years of time. So by the time you got somebody on campus, you had a pretty good idea of, of who you were getting, what kind of, not just player, but what kind of person. What I've heard from multiple coaches um, in this era of college basketball is they'll say, listen, I can get on Synergy and I know exactly what type of player I'm getting when I go into the transfer portal. But Austin, I never recruited this player out of high school. I do not know his mother. I do not know his father. I barely know his grassroots coach. I've never been to his high school. And I'm really just watching him on Synergy, watching his name pop into the transfer portal, reaching out to anybody I know to reach out, making a connection, trying to get him on campus. And if I can secure a commitment within 20 minutes of meeting them, then that's what we're doing. And that's, you, what you can find out then is, all right, you got him on campus, you got the commitment, you got him enrolled, but man, this guy doesn't work. Or man, this guy's got a drinking problem. Or man, this guy's got an attitude problem. Or whatever the issue is. And that's, that's the biggest thing people are going to run into. You, you, you have to build rosters through the transfer portal, but you have to build them largely with people you don't even really know. And sometimes you can get a bad mixture of people on your campus. We're talking to Gary Parrish, our college basketball insider from CBS Sports. Gary, uh, let's switch over to the Missouri Tigers. Desiree Reed Francois leaving. Um, you know, this isn't just a basketball thing. This is the whole athletic department, but they have had a lot of athletic directors turn over. Um, you know, she left for Arizona. It is one of her alma maters, uh, that she, that she went to. But she took less money and she left the SEC to go to what will be a Big 12 school uh, very soon. Just knowing the college game and, and now this, you know, I, you know, she didn't hire Eli Drinkwood, so it probably doesn't do anything for his status and he's coming off a great year. But it now means Dennis Gates not working for whoever hired him whenever they put the next athletic director in place. How surprised are you to see an SEC AD leave Mizzou and go to Arizona? Well, I think on a surface level, right, like you don't see people uh, – voluntarily leave the SEC too often. But, you know, as my own career has unfolded and I've had to make family decisions over the years about where I want to work and what kind of job I want to do and where I want to raise my my sons and where I want, um, you know, my family to be, I have made decisions that I I know would not have been the same decisions somebody else would have made. Um, So I'm always hesitant to say things like, I can't believe she would do this, or I'm so shocked he would do that, because ultimately when you are making big career family decisions like this, there is a lot that goes into it um, other than what conference affiliation a possible employer has. And so I don't know enough about her um, circumstances to know exactly what would have motivated her to make that move. But I bet you if you sat down and, and let her talk you through it, um, at the end of the conversation, you'd probably go, okay, that makes sense. 
they seem to have like an oversight committee over the athletic director, a committee that was, you know, we talked to Gabe DeArmond, who does a great job covering uh, Missouri for powermizzou.com. And, and, you know, I asked him at the end, I said, what would you say to the athletic department if you had just some overall thoughts? He said, I would tell them to hire people and let them do their job. And he, he talked about, you know, he read what it says this oversight committee is supposed to do. He goes, basically, didn't I just describe the job of an athletic director? Like, why do you, right. you know, if, if we hired someone, you know, he said, if I hired someone to say, hey, we, we've got a committee that's going to see the oversight of 2 to 6 p.m. and how the, the 2 to 6 p.m. slot works on, on WHP, wouldn't you be a little annoyed? Isn't that what you're supposed to do? Uh, is that, do, do you hear things about Mizzou being a difficult place for uh, coaches to work or for ADs to be at? I know ADs aren't your wheelhouse, but I'm just curious if anything like that's come across your desk. I, I haven't heard that specifically about Mizzou, but like that's not the type of thing I would just naturally hear about Mizzou. If Gabe suggests that it is something that is a uh, um, an issue uh, within that athletic department, I would trust him on this more than me. I will just say that broadly speaking, you're exactly right. Um, people don't like to be micromanaged. People don't like to be, um, frankly, bothered, particularly when they are competent at their job. You know, I, I had one athletic director one time. He was talking about uh, his basketball coach, and he just hired a basketball coach. And he said, hey, every every Tuesday at, at 10 a.m. we're going to meet. And, uh, you know, just to talk about how things are going. And, you know, if you need anything from me, that would be a great time to bring it up. And every Tuesday at 10, can't wait to see you. And the AD was like, so we met on that first Tuesday, and we talked through some stuff, and it was actually pretty good. Then we got to the next Tuesday, and it was like we had less stuff to talk about. And we got to the next Tuesday, and it was like, all right, we're both just wasting each other's time, and I feel like I'm aggravating you now about coming to your office every Tuesday. And he ultimately asked his coach, hey, what, what do you want from me? And he said, respectfully, um, just leave me alone. And if I start doing my job in a, in a way that isn't satisfactory to you, then please, my door is obviously always open, but we don't have to talk every day or even every week or, or even every few weeks. Just, just I, I know what I'm doing. Let me do it, and if I need you, I'll let you know. And that is how most people like to do their jobs. Frankly, it's the way I like to do my jobs. Um, if I'm out of line, let me know. Otherwise, let me do what, what you hired me to do. So if that is a, a real issue for ADs at Missouri with this oversight committee, you know, second-guessing everything or, you know, debating internally every decision you make, everything you do, I can, you know, perhaps apples to oranges, but just from my own career, my own perspective, I could see how that would be aggravating. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we're talking to Gary Parrish here in the program. On the subject of Mizzou, they continue to be winless in the SEC. We don't need to do five minutes on it. I mean, is there? they had a big lead on Ole Miss. They blew it. Uh, Curtis, who's the Mizzou fan on the show, said, look, we're at 12. We're two-thirds of the way through. I'm now entertaining the idea that they may not win a game. I, nothing has really changed from my perspective. Do you see anything different? Is it alarming that they blew it against Ole Miss? Do you view this any differently? You've already stated that, look, sometimes things go wrong. There was nothing that could be done midstream to change anything. It's going to take an offseason, and if you're you know, going to get to the offseason, you might as well give him the offseason. Has anything changed in your view of Missouri and how tough this season's been? No, not really. I mean, obviously, you never expect any – power conference school to be 0-12 in the league, except for, you know, maybe DePaul, right? This is just not something that's supposed to happen. And it's particularly not supposed to happen to Dennis. It's not supposed to happen at Missouri. So I understand every Mizzou fan being upset, frustrated, disappointed, concerned. 
I just think you gotta let it let this thing ride out and it lands wherever it lands. Like what you know, at this point, I know it matters because you don't want to be the first SEC team to go winless in league since I guess Vanderbilt did it under Bryce Drew, but like practically speaking, one in seventeen, zero oh, and eighteen. Like, do you really care? It's going to be a terrible season no matter what, and next season's going to be a need to be a good season no matter what, or else, yes, that is when you start to have big conversations about the direction of your program. Looking at the schedule at home against Ole Miss on March second is obviously the best place where they could maybe turn that zero in the win column into a one. But at this point, 1-17, 0-18, no matter where it lands, it's going to be obviously really bad. But, but keep this in mind. Vanderbilt thought they had a bright, young head coach in Bryce Drew, and then it got really, really bad, and they went 0-whatever in the league, and they fired him. And now Bryce Drew is way better off than Vanderbilt. Bryce Drew, yeah. Drew has got – there's only two teams in the country that have fewer than three losses on the season. One of them is, number one, UConn, and the other one is Grand Canyon, coached by Bryce Drew. So I'm not saying Dennis is Bryce, and I'm not saying if you fire him, he'll go on to great things somewhere else. I'm just saying that I think Vandy got caught up in a situation where they just sort of felt like we, if, you, if you go winless in the league, we have to fire you without actually getting in there and going, okay, why did we go winless in the league? Is this guy still the right guy for the job? Is this just one bad year or a reflection of who he is as a college basketball coach? Because I think if they would have asked smarter questions and deeper questions, they would have said more likely than not, Bryce Drew is a good basketball coach who just had a terrible year, uh, mostly because his best player, most talented player, got injured. And it's little more than that. We're going to ride this thing with him and see where it goes. If Vanderbilt would have done that, I think Vanderbilt would be in a better place today than it is right now. And it's at least among the reasons, if I were Missouri, I would be wanting to go to a year three with Dennis King. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking to Gary Parrish here in the uh, program. Let's switch gears and talk about Texas and Kansas State last night. I don't know how much of the game you saw, but I'm pretty sure basketball is worse for it. Um, it, it was not pretty. And, I mean, both the – like, I get it with K-State. I, Jerome Tang lost, you know, arguably his best player uh, before the year. But, man, I, I, I feel bad saying this, but this is why you don't just bump up the interim. At Texas, I mean, they won. Congrats, but that was—that's tough. Uh, that team is—it's—it doesn't seem to fit either. Like, are, is te- how much is Texas underachieving this year in your mind? Well, Seren, you, you you make a good point here. This is something I've talked about for years, and it's something I talked about specifically as it pertains to Rodney Terry in Texas. As Rodney was doing a good job with that team last season, um, you know, keeping them in the NCAA tournament conversation, winning the Big 12 tournament, you would see people who have jobs like mine go on TV or jump on Twitter, and they would say things like, well, now Texas has to give Rodney Terry the job. They have to give Rodney Terry the job. And I always stopped well short of that by saying, I think Rodney Terry is doing a wonderful job under these circumstances. I've known Rodney Terry for nearly 20 years. I like him on a personal level. But are we really sure if you are Texas, Rodney Terry is the best coach you can hire once this season is over. Are we certain of that? Just because you did a good job with another person's team doesn't mean you are equipped best to run a college basketball program the caliber 
of the Texas program. How about this? If if Chris Beard would have left a, the year prior for, for, say, any job in America, the NBA, whatever, and Texas had an opening, they would have never under any circumstances considered promoting Rodney Terry to the head coach. They only did this because Chris Beard got removed in the middle of a season. You have to have an interim coach, and then he did a good job with that interim team. I never predicted it would go badly. I just thought it was short-sighted to assume you have to give somebody the job because they did a good job for two months. Ultimately, every athletic director who uses an interim coach to get through a season, at the end of that season, should look at it and go, okay, without getting caught up in what just happened with this basketball team, who is the best person I can hire to run this basketball program going forward? If Wichita State would have done that when it had an interim coach a few years ago, I think it would have gone a different direction than the direction it went. But just like Texas, Wichita State got caught up in, our interim coach is doing a pretty good job. We never would have imagined we'd hire him full-time, but I guess we'll do it now. It was a mistake at Wichita, and the early return to Texas suggests it might end up being a mistake there, too. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. And, and, you know, I did predict it'd go bad, but I predict every interim coach that's kept will go bad because <laughs> it's math, and I'm right like 75 80% of the time. So they, uh, they, I just... Here's the thing. No, you're, you're exactly right. They usually do. I've, I've said this for a long time. You know how you could be the best NBA draft analyst in the world? The very best. Like on an NBA draft show, if you wanted to, when people look at, back at it in three years or five years and ten years and see which analyst was really right the most, you know what you, you, know what you should do? Every time they ask, every time a person is picked, every time they come to you and they say, hey, Gary, hey, Seren, what, what how do you think this is going to go? You know what you should say? Not I don't good. think it's going to work out. <laughs> if you say that about every pick... You will be right more often than not. And if you say it about every interim coach, or frankly, just coaching higher in general, yeah. you'll be right more often than not. Yeah, for sure. With some tweaks based upon what the program has and what the history is. But yeah, 100%. Sure. That's exactly. You play the math and uh, and, you, and you see where it takes you. Because, uh, yeah, not good. Uh, Kelvin Sampson, uh, pa- or tied or passed, I can't remember which it was, Henry Iba, uh, with the uh, win. Are you like me? And do you look at Kelvin Sampson's career and go, God, I wish he didn't miss five, six, seven, eight years in the NBA uh, because of some techs? Of course. Um, but I'm also like you, uh, or I'm, all, but I've also heard Kelvin say that obviously you never want to get fired at Indiana. I, I think it's possible that if he were high, if he kept the job at Indiana, he would still be the coach there right now and have a national championship. Like people forget when he got fired this season. That team with Eric Gordon as a star one-and-done mm-hmm. freshman was, like, ranked in the top ten and maybe headed for a Final Four. And then, you know, respectfully, I'm not trying to get jokes off, but Dan Dotsky took it over and, you know, ran it right into the ground. But, you know, Kelvin had it rocking and rolling at Indiana at the time. And looking back at it, you know, at the time it really did feel like he had to be fired. But looking back on it, the idea that you would fire a college basketball coach because he liked to play on the phone too much, is it's, it's ridiculous given the other things we've seen go on in the sport. But I guess this is what I'm trying to say. Kelvin has made a point to say he, he became a different coach, a better coach, a more well-rounded coach in the NBA. There are just things he never knew about the sport coaching in college that he would have never properly understood in, without that time in the NBA. So what he would tell you is, yeah, it would have been great to never miss that time. He'd have more wins. He'd have more trophies. He'd have more awards. He might have more Final Fours. 
but he might not be the same basketball coach without his time in the NBA. So that's at least the way he makes sense of it. Is basketball just different than football? Um, is is Kelvin Sampson just this much better than any of the football coaches I'm going to mention? But, you know, when we've seen, like, TCU going to the Big 12, Gary Patterson's team took a step back. They were 10-2, and 11-1 every year, play a big bowl game against somebody, but just run rough shot over the Mountain West. They came to the uh, Big 12, and they were good. But they, they didn't win a league title, right, until he was gone. Uh, that's kind of been the M.O. We saw Central Florida uh, with Gus Malzahn, you know, take its lumps this year. We have not seen those mid-major powers come into the big leagues and dominate. He is coming in and dominating. He is the best team in the Big 12. He is carrying uh, all that success in this next level. Is that Kelvin Sampson? Or is, is Houston a unique case? Is basketball just different than football? How do you view it? It's Kelvin Sampson. I mean, I do think basketball is different from football in the sense that, you know, you might need three or four Big 12-level players in basketball to, like, have a good Big 12-level team. You know, Kansas is a great example of that right now. How many great players are in the Kansas roster right now? Maybe five, right? And But Kansas is still one of the ten best teams in the country. You can do it with a small amount of impactful players. In football, just it's a numbers game. You need a lot more of them. So I do think it is more difficult to to transition up in leagues in football than basketball, but I do think the reason it is going so well for the Houston basketball program is not simply because it's basketball, not simply because it's Houston, it's because it's Kelvin Sampson. He's he's great. I mean, actually great, arguably, you know, you start getting into conversations about who is the best coach in college basketball you're going to get a lot of bill self answers um you know before his arrest you would get some chris beard answers um you know a couple of years ago you get some tony bennett answers rick patino would still get some answers tom is though but uh, kelvin sampson is on that list he belongs on that list i had heard for years um you know as they were running through the American Athletic Conference and finishing number one at Ken Palm or top three in this computer. It was like, well, of course, they're doing it the same way Gonzaga is doing it. The reason Gonzaga is always good in these computers is because they're just beating um, the brakes off of bad teams in their league one after another. Houston's just replicating that formula. I never believed it was true, but it's hard to argue against people when, you know, they're just looking at what league somebody plays at. But we've seen Houston go from whatever league you think the AAC is to what is undeniably the best league in the country. And they're still sitting here at 23-3. and They're ranked number one at Kempom. They have a lead in the Big 12 standings, and they look like they are probably headed toward a Big 12 championship, maybe an outright one. Uh, last question. KU all fixed with the way they routed Oklahoma? What did you take away from that game? I don't know that all fixed, but I was never really concerned about the losses. Um, I mean, you never want to lose by 29, regardless of who you are, especially when you're Kansas. But I could sort of chalk that up to you're on the road against a quality opponent, and if we've been calling Kansas a five-player team, then what is Kansas when you're without Kevin McCuller and with a banged-up Dewan Harris? I mean, is that a three-and-a-half player team? Well, like, good luck. So didn't expect them to lose to 29 that night, but wasn't surprised that they lost. I think it's just going to come down to with Kansas is they are clearly going to be a Final Four slash national championship contender until they are eliminated from the NCAA tournament. And more so than any other legitimate championship contender, their success or lack thereof is probably going to be heavy reliant on health and foul trouble because, you know, there are other programs like a Kentucky 
where they can lose a DJ Wagner for a minute or a you know a, a, a Trey Mitchell for a minute, and they got so many other talented guys on the roster that the drop off isn't isn't too dramatic. Sometimes not even noticeable, but at Kansas, it's it's pretty clear. Um, if they're missing any of those starters, they've got big problems, and so they're going to need to maintain health and also avoid foul trouble to, to get wherever the best-case scenario has this season getting. Uh, time for our final four. It's brought to you by the University of Kansas Health System, an official health care provider of Kansas Athletics. Together with LMH Health, if you have an urgent orthopedic or sports injury, the University of Kansas Health System can see you quickly. Learn more at kansashealthsystem.com slash sportsmedicine. Uh, Gary, I'll start you with this one. Uh, what is the best season Rick Pitino has at, at St. John's measured by tournament success? I could see him in an Elite Eight, something like that. I just, I still believe in Rick Pitino. The, the, his comments in recent days are Trump concerning in the sense that he sounds like an older coach who has maybe lost his grip on, on his program a little bit, but that's still one of the greats of all time. And I still think with proper NLL, NIL backing, which I understand they have at St. John's, eventually he's going to buy a talented enough team that is going to allow him to, to do his magic with it. And, I could see him yeah, – I, I wouldn't even roll out Final Four. I, I think Rick Pitino is going to be successful at St. John's. It just looks like it's going to take more than, than one year. We're at spring training. Spring training is held in two states, Arizona and Florida. Which one do you enjoy visiting more? Uh, I think I enjoy, uh, enjoy Arizona more, but based on where I live, I've been to Florida a lot more often. Just a quick little story. Uh, I used to work with Danny Granger, former NBA All-Star, with the Pacers, of course. Um, he no longer works with us, but he got into television for a minute. And, um, I, you know, do we just, you, you, you work with these people in a studio. Like, it doesn't matter that they have $200 million and they used to play in the NBA. Like, they're just sitting in the chair next to you. You end up talking about your kids and everything else. So I, I realized Danny lived in the uh, Phoenix, Arizona, Scottsdale area. But he's from New Orleans, and he played much of his career in Indianapolis. So I was like, why do you live in uh, Arizona. And he said, I literally, when I retired, Googled, where is the best place to live in the United States if you enjoy golf and great weather? And it said Scottsdale, Arizona, and he bought land and built a mansion in Scott. Like, he literally just moved to Arizona because he Googled that that's the best place to live if you want to be in a great spot with great golf courses. So uh, I also like great weather and great golf courses. I'd pick Arizona. I love it. I love it. All right, what position did you play in Little League Baseball? I was a second baseman my whole life. I had a good glove, a not-so-great arm, and I was a very average hitter. But I did have a good glove. I was a nice middle infielder. <laughs> I went right to, now. Quick, 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 quick one. I went yeah. um, after my sophomore year of high school, I went to a Mississippi State baseball camp. And um, the, uh, shortly at, while I was in college, Mississippi State, I believe, went to the College World Series. And every infielder on that College World Series was at this camp that I was at after my sophomore year of high school. And I finished second in this infield competition among all these people. And I wow. thought for sure, I, I thought for, I was like, okay, this is what had to happen. Mississippi State's going to start recruiting me. Not one single coach even walked over to say hello to me. They were all over there with a the six-foot-three shortstop from Oxford High School who was going to play for them someday. So that was, that was genuinely the first time I realized I am never going to amount to anything as an athlete because I just outperformed everybody here, and based on me being five foot six, nobody's even talking to me. <laughs> I love it. 
<laughs> I love it. They they're lost. They could have had Jose Altuve, but they missed out. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. The American yeah, Jose I, Altuve. I, I could stand next to Jose Altuve, but buddy, I couldn't swing a bat like him. Yeah. Uh, finally, uh, who would be your favorite to win the national championship right now? Just a favorite. I'm not saying you're predicting them to win it, but who's the favorite to win it all? Um, I think it's Connecticut. I think they're actually the favorite in the betting markets at this point. Recently, it was Purdue, but you kind of starting to pass Purdue in some of the predictive metrics, still behind Houston in most of them. But I think based on what we've seen through, let's just say, 26 games this season, you could make a reasonable case for Connecticut, Houston, Purdue. But I, I think Connecticut looks like they, they are certainly they look like they're operating at the highest level right now. And there's some data points to back that up. Gary Parrish is our college basketball insider. Gary, you're the best. We appreciate it. We'll talk next week. All right, buddy. Enjoy Arizona. I'll see you. We're almost done for the day, but there's just a few more things we'd like to share. But there's still more. Here's the kicker. Here's the kicker of this whole thing. On the program. But first, the Joe's Kansas City Barbecue Burnt end of the hour answer. Justin Verlander, 41 today. Second overall pick in the 2004 Amateur Draft. Who was the first overall pick? I believe you might have to trim the hedges because it was Matt Bush. It was. Well done. Nailed it. (laughs) Justin Verlander, future 300-game winner. Joe's Kansas City Barbecue we just gave away. Joe'sKC.com. Get the best barbecue in the world. It's a Joe's Kansas City Barbecue. Uh, 47th Emission, 119th Strang Line, and 117th and Row. Joe's Kansas City Barbecue's Joe'sKC.com to send it anywhere in the country. Leave you with this. College football has decided that it will keep the 5 plus 7 format, uh, and they're still talking to the two Pac-12 schools. Apparently they're going to get their share as a Power 5 school of the playoffs because there's a 12-year contract. There's two more years left in that. But I, I don't understand why they're still having conversations with Oregon State and Washington State, the last two schools of the Pac-12. Either fold them into the Mountain West, call them the Mountain West, call them the Pac-12, whatever it is, decide whether or not they're a Power 5 conference or not. But I don't understand these shenanigans that continue to go on. Listen, I'm sorry that the music ended, right? The musical chairs ended and you didn't have a conference. But, like, how long are we going to continue this charade? They're not going to be a part of the equation. Let's go. Get on to being who you're going to be, Oregon State and Washington State.